You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Perish miserably, they who think that these men did or suffered aught disgraceful. You didn't like the look of this battle from the moment you stepped onto the field. You didn't like the terrain. You didn't like the look of the enemy. Those spears, twice as long as anything you carry. Even from across the field, those flanges look nasty. And now you know they are, and you know you were right, and a great deal of good it does you. Your friends are dying all around you. The world has shrunk down to the clash of metal and the screams of men, and in the crush you can't get your sword arm free. Those spears, you were right, they are deadly, twice as long as a man is tall, with vicious spear points that trap hard in a man's ribs, impossible to pull free. They are thrusting them through your shield wall, they are breaking through your armor, skewering men all around you. Telephus is beside you, and this time he's not smiling. He's fighting for his life, at the very limits of his skill, desperate to hold up his shield, half on you, half on him. He lunges to block an approaching spear. You help him, you get in between, and you shove it aside, and it drives straight into the face of the man next to you. He drops like a stone, screaming. This isn't a battle, it's a slaughter. Quarters too close to fight, those Macedonian spears too long, they keep the enemy out of your reach. Your commander placed you on the right side, facing the enemy's left, their weaker side, the expected playbook, predictable. But over the heads of fighting men, you catch sight of the opposing commander. He's young, just a boy, younger than you were the day you and Telephus swore an oath by the grave of Iolus. You catch sight of the line of his jaw, the formidable weight of his gaze, and you doubt that his is the weaker side. Telephus has fallen. It's a spear in the side, between the ribs. Then the enemy jerked it out again, sending a gout of blood onto the ground. 
Immediately, you drop to your knees, your shield propped up, desperate to keep you both from being trampled. You curse, trying to staunch the blood with anything, a handful of grass, your hands. Telephus catches one of your hands in his, his face gone ashen, his eyes still have that glow, that joy. Think we're done for, he says, and you nod. It's the truth. It was a good run, he tells you. I'm glad we did it together. And your hand tightens in his. People stumbling all around you, it's all you can do to keep from being trampled. But it's your men moving off and theirs moving in. Your people can't hold their position for long. The ground that you kneel on is soaked in blood. You expect him to deny, to beg you to save yourself. You brace to refuse, but he only smiles. Come with me, he says. Let's go together to our next adventure. And your hand tightens on his, and you nod, and now it's the enemy all around you, and the enemy's spear coming down straight for the top of your skull. The tip of it pierces your helmet. Your skull cracks beneath the force, pain lancing down to your jaw, Telephus on the day you were chosen, the strength of his arms around you, the ferocity of his pledge, hard by the grave of Iolus, his hand in yours, I swear. This is what you swore to do. Your eyes hold his, and your arms tighten around him, and you smile. You're not sorry. You're not sorry for any of it. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. This episode is, like, going to be really difficult for me in a lot of places. It's a tearjerker. It is. It's like the end of the Boudicca arc or the Spartacus arc. Like, we know what's going to happen. Well, not everyone knows what's going to happen because not everyone's as familiar with this story, you know. So let's not give it away at the... <laughs> well, I guess I kind of did with the intro, though, so... You kind of did, and also we did in the beginning with archaeology, but it's fine. Okay, so you know how this is going to end, people. You know how it's going to end, but you don't know how we get there. It wasn't what I was expecting. It's all about the journey. Last week, we told you the story of how the Sacred Band of Thebes was formed. We took you through their first important military victories, victories that depended on the intense trust and love the Sacred Band members had for each other, and proved, through the power of queer love, that the Invincible Spartans were not so invincible after all. Yeah, take that, you joyless bastards. They just can't love anything because it's not about the Spartan state. I mean, later in this series, I'm going to cover Helen of Sparta, and I'm sure I will feel differently. But right now, take that, you joyless bastards. <laughs> Listen, our feels are complex. They change from episode to episode as we deepen our knowledge. But this is going to inform our opinion of, of Helen, too. I mean, the fact that she blew up her family for love and she was a Spartan. Think about it. Yeah, but I think she was pre-Spartan Spartan. Like, she was before the stereotype. But anyway, we'll get there. Well, she might have been pre-actual even Sparta because that would have been a Mycenaean territory at the time. So did they have the Agoge? Were they a bunch of joyless, loveless war automatons? <laughs> I wonder if some of that comes from the legend of Helen and what happens when you have the ability to choose. You destroy society. We're going to explore that later about how women's choice is just the end of the world. Women choosing who to have sex with is literally the end of the world. Anyway. We also introduced you to the concept of leagues. The Thebans have been the first to form all the city-states in their area into a kind of super city-state, a league, if you will, that helped them contend with larger powers like Sparta and Athens. Sparta and Athens, who, by the way, had leagues of their own by now, made Thebes disband theirs. They didn't like seeing Thebes get too powerful, and also they didn't like seeing women play baseball. 
It's a very old League of Their Own joke. There's no baseball in the sacred band. <laughs> There's no crying in the sacred band of thieves. Well, there might be. Those guys are very in touch with their feelings. Again, an old League of Their Own joke. <laughs> really dating yourself, Jen. I know. So now, the year is 371 BC. The sacred band of Thebes has defeated the Spartans in some key battles, showing everyone in Greece that the Spartans had been coasting on their reputation for a long time. But Thebes' relationship with its new BFF, Athens, has turned downright chilly, mainly because Athens thinks Thebes is paying way too much attention to its own problems, such as the Spartans still ravaging its countryside, rather than helping them deal with their navy and fight Sparta on their territory and deal with their own problems. Athens was like a super selfish ally. And then, when all three regional superpowers got together to negotiate a treaty, things devolved quickly. With Epaminondas, the Theban delegate, screaming at the Spartan king Aegilicious, because that's what we're calling him. His actual name is Agelisaus the second. That's what we're calling him. That's what kind of podcast this is. Anyway, so they're both screaming at each other, both accusing the other of atrocities, of obnoxious hypocritical moral grandstanding, of bullying smaller city-states into joining their leagues, even as Epaminondas and the Thebans refused, flat-out refused, to dissolve their Boeotian League again, even though the Spartans and Athenians really, really, really didn't like it. So that treaty negotiation ended, as you might expect, in a declaration of war, right? We all saw that coming. Because it's the ancient world and honor was at stake. That's right, Cucullin. I'm taking Cucullin to see the Batman this weekend. Oh, I'm sure he'll love it. <laughs> the Thebans, led by Epaminondas, rushed home to prepare for war. And to be very clear, this time, things were very dire. They could not possibly win this war. At least, that's what everyone thought. The Athenians, by the terms of the new treaty, could not help them this time. The treaty forbade it, and the sacred band might have won a few battles, but the larger effect of those battles appears to have been just making the Spartans really, really mad. The Spartans still outnumbered the Thebans drastically in an all-out war. Everyone expected that the Thebans would be destroyed, their capital city wiped off the map, and their population sold into slavery to the Spartans. Yeah, people were catastrophizing a lot, but... Epaminondas was not worried, and here's why. First, the Spartan army looked huge, but in reality its numbers were swelled with men from dozens of different city-states from the Peloponnese, all under Spartan control. These were the Spartan city-states that were in its league. See, at that shouting match that Epaminondas got into with Aegilicious at the treaty negotiation, the one where they both accused each other of atrocities and bullying city-states into its league, both men were right about each other. But Epaminondas was more right than Aegilicious. The Spartans were worse, its allies were iffier, and Epaminondas knew it. The Spartans had held an iron grip on the Peloponnese since the Peloponnesian War several decades before. Some city-states in their league had joined willingly, but others were bullied, battered, coerced, and threatened into joining. The Spartans would sometimes eradicate the city-states' existing ruling factions and install their own. The city-states who joined had to give up a third of their fighting-age men to Sparta's wars, whether they wanted to or not. Frequently, these city-states had no personal beef with whoever the Spartans were fighting, but they didn't have a choice. And the way the Peloponnesian League was set up, the Spartans easily dominated the decision-making process. The other city-states barely got a say in what wars were fought or anything else. Many wanted out of this arrangement. But the Spartans were the Spartans. One did not simply go against the Spartans, unless you had a magical ring. 
One did not simply walk into Mordor, I mean, go against the Spartans. Especially when you are a much smaller city-state, defenseless and in Spartan territory. Of course, if the Spartan army that the Thebans would be facing was made up entirely of Spartiates, fighting-age Spartan men who had gone through a go-gay training, then the Thebans would really be in trouble. But Epaminondas believed that the Spartans' army would be bulked up by troops from these other affiliated city-states. These were men who had not been trained in the Agoge, who had no personal beef with Thebes, and who didn't even want to be there. His plan was not to fight them if not absolutely necessary. They were to target the core Spartiates only, get rid of the head, and the allies would scatter. And according to James Rom, quote, the sacred band was key to this plan. At Tegaira, one of the battles we covered in the last episode, four years before, the band had been badly outnumbered but had still prevailed. It had charged the strongest point of the Spartan line, where the Polemarchs were stationed, and smashed it apart on contact. The band's small numbers and tight cohesion made it more like a projectile than a phalanx. It struck its target head-on with hurtling force, and its commander, Pelopitis, had shown he had expert aim. There was another factor here that was working in Epaminondas' favor. Of the thousands of men in the Spartan army, it was estimated that maybe a thousand or so were real Spartiates. And this was like the absolute maximum estimate, right? A thousand is the absolute maximum because it's estimated that there were only about a thousand real deal Spartiates in Sparta at all at this time. So there might have been significantly less of those guys because some were deployed doing other things. Yeah. But here's the thing. A lot of those weren't even real Spartiates either. Those weren't men raised in the Agoge together, standing shoulder to shoulder in that line. It would be lines of men fractured by differing status and class resentments. And here's why. And again, we see this as like one of the problems that we had when we talked about the Spartacus War, right? Like how things break down as you get these auxiliaries, these people who are forced to fight, and you get some resentments, man. So here's the thing. The population of Sparta at this time was crashing. At this time period, the population in all the city-states were declining. But Sparta's was crashing hard. I can't possibly figure out why that might be. In the 400s BC, there had been approximately 8,000 Spartiates. That is, fully trained, agoge-hardened Spartan warriors. The real deal. The real deal. With that tiny dick, I mean big dick energy. Now, there were only about a thousand. The cause for this population crash, I mean, look, you can all probably see it from space at this point. However, it has been disputed for centuries by historians. Some of it may have had to do with frequent, incessant war, I mean definitely, climate change, and intense xenophobia, so the Spartans did not encourage immigration at all, to put it lightly. But on top of all these things, the Spartans imposed incredibly rigorous standards on who could be considered a Spartan citizen and a Spartiate with full Spartiate privileges and place in the army and all of that. Their system was designed to weed people out, and when they lost someone, that person was not replaced easily because you had to go through a goge training since the age of seven to be a real Spartiate warrior. First, to be a Spartan, you had to be descended from another Spartan, no exceptions. Second, the Spartan state was essentially a totalitarian regime designed to weed out the weak from infancy onward. As a baby, you had to not be born with any quote-unquote defects and be strong and lively enough to not get thrown in a pit. If you survived that, you had to go through the brutal agoge training, which not everyone survived. Violence was endemic in the agoge. Again, the purpose was to weed the weaker ones out. And boys sometimes died in this training, by design. Instructors and older boys regularly sparked violent brawls between the younger boys, which could turn deadly. 
Plutarch tells us that Spartan boys sometimes died from lashes they received as punishment for things like stealing food, which they were actually forced to do so they didn't starve. Not to mention all the exposure to cold and heat, the wearing of a single cloak the whole time, and doubtless, lots of boys died of exposure. Once they became men, Spartans were expected to contribute food to the Sicitia, the communal dining halls where everyone ate. The requirement was onerous, and those who couldn't pay their share were not allowed to be full Spartan citizens. Increasingly, it was becoming more and more common for men to be unable to afford the food contribution. James Rom blames the ongoing concentration of power and wealth in Sparta into the hands of the few. The more land was grabbed up by the most powerful elite families, the more other Spartans didn't have the land to produce that much food. Those who couldn't contribute food to the communal cafeterias were called hypomiones, or inferiors, and, in, and, exc- <laughs> and excluded from full citizenship. But the thing is, when the Spartan army's population was crashing, they would bring in anybody that they possibly could and stick them in a helmet to bulk out their numbers. Epaminondas knew, or at least he strongly suspected, that even among the actual Spartans in the Spartan army, not all of them would be full, battle-hardened, real-deal Spartiots. (laughs) Right. Thank you, Spartan mom Kukulin. Those ranks would be swelled by people the Spartans considered quote-unquote inferior, quite probably resentful and alienated from the Spartan cause themselves. This includes the Hypomiones, the inferiors, as well as illegitimate sons who weren't allowed to become full Spartans either. Those guys were more likely to defect or flee the battlefield or turn on their fellow soldiers or be the weak link in the phalanx. And, perhaps most significant of all, there were former helots in those ranks. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
here's where we need to pause and talk about the helots. These were a huge reason why, when Epaminondas and Aegilicious were yelling at each other for atrocities and hypocrisies, both were right. But Epaminondas was more right. The Spartans had a class of enslaved people that they subjugated within their territory, called the Helots. It all goes back to the Bronze Age. The Mycenaean Greeks, the ancient precursors to the archaic and classical Greeks, who built all those Cyclopean stone walls, whose warlike culture was probably the basis for the heroes of the Iliad, they used to live in the Peloponnese. At some point, a Doric-speaking culture from the north invaded and subjugated the Peloponnese in an event that, in Greek pseudo-history, was referred to as the return of the Heraclidae. Historians call it the Dorian invasion. It happened from roughly the 1100s BC. That Doric-speaking culture is largely believed to be the Spartans, who spoke a dialect of ancient Greek called Doric. That was how the Spartans came to the Peloponnese, allegedly. Of course, this is disputed by modern historians. Some doubt it happened like this or happened at all. But the Dorian invasion is one explanation I've seen given for the Helots. According to one theory, the Helots were the original Mycenaeans who lived in the Peloponnese, and when the Spartans came to the area, they brutally subjugated them. Again, this is only one theory. The Helots could have been a different indigenous group, or they could have been ethnically the same as the Spartans, but just divided along class rather than ethnic lines. It's not clear. It's not clear whether the Spartans really did come to the Peloponnese from somewhere else or if they'd been there all along either. They could have been, you know, a Mycenaean upper class who was subjugating this other group. We don't know. What is clear, however, is that there was a subclass of enslaved people in the Peloponnese called the Helots, and the Spartans did brutally subjugate them, according to the ancient sources. The Helots were forced to labor on Spartan farms. They were the ones who provided the Spartan state with food and made it so that the Spartiates could focus all their energy on being warriors. The Helots also worked as domestic servants. Helot women might be servants to highborn Spartan women. Helot men and boys served Spartan men and boys in the agoge and at war, carrying their weapons and gear. Even when the Spartan population was relatively high, the Helots outnumbered them, sometimes by as much as seven to one. And some historians, ancient and modern, claim that the Spartans' intense focus on warfare, their ferocious need to be seen as the toughest, the scariest, to inspire fear, part, if not most of that posturing, was for the Helots' psychological manipulation. Like the Helots were the audience. Yeah, because if the Helots decided to really rise up and resist the Spartan subjugation, the Spartans were toast, and they knew it. The Spartans lived in constant fear of a Helot uprising. According to ancient writers, the Spartans constantly went around armed to the teeth and only put their weapons down at home with their doors locked just in case the Helots attacked. To keep the Helots down, the Spartans ritually humiliated and brutalized them. Here's what some contemporaries of the time have said. According to Myron of Priene, a historian from the 3rd century BC, so contemporary to the time of the Spartans, who allegedly hated the Spartans and who other contemporaries, like Pausanias, said is unreliable. So grain of salt, but also probably knew the Spartans firsthand as he was a contemporary, so I don't fucking know. Quote, They assigned to the Helots every shameful task leading to disgrace. For they ordained that each one of them must wear a dogskin cap and wrap himself in skins and receive a stipulated number of beatings every year regardless of any wrongdoing, so that they would never forget they were slaves. Moreover, 
If any exceeded the vigor proper to a slave's condition, they made death the penalty, and they allotted a punishment to those controlling them if they failed. So, basically what they're saying is, if any helots exceeded the vigor proper to a slave's condition, so I guess if they were particularly strong and vigorous? No, not just that, like, well-fed, well-taken-care-of, like, not hurt. (laughs) Right, if they were, like, you know, healthy, then they had to be killed. And I imagine here, like, yes, that's true about being strong and healthy and all that, but probably also mentally if they were, like, smart and clever and, like... Not totally servile? Yeah, I think it's kind of that as well, which is just all of this is fucking awful. Fuck you, Sparta. And if you happen to be that person's owner, quote unquote, and you tried to protect that person, then you would be penalized. Yeah, because you were breaking the rules. Like, you needed to show the helots who was boss at all times. And if you didn't show them, if you, like, treated them like humans and didn't beat them all the time, then you, you were the problem. Yeah, because you're encouraging a population of helots that could rise up. You're creating a danger to everybody in Sparta, the Spartan state. Hold up, kids, because Plutarch has something to say. Everyone stop everything. Listen to Plutarch. (laughs) Listen to Plutarch, kids. Gather round. So according to Plutarch, the Spartans forced the Helots to drink unwatered wine, which was actually kind of dangerous, probably not quite like drinking a hundred proof alcohol, but alcohol was supposed to be watered back then. So it was drinking alcohol that was too concentrated to be safe. Or drinkable, according to the standards of the time yeah probably good for like cleaning your wounds though bathing your babies if you happen to be spartan to be fair it probably was so after they had drunk this really strong alcohol that was definitely not safe for consumption if it wasn't watered although the water definitely had bacteria and other things in it so who knows but anyway then after they drunk this unwatered wine the spartans forced them to go in the syssitia the public cafeterias and made them sing humiliating songs and dance embarrassing dances so that the children might, quote, see what a drunken man is. Do you remember when we were kids and there were the don't do drugs special presentations? Was it like dare or something? Dare, yeah. It's like if they went and found someone from outside, shot him up with some drug non-consensually, and brought them into the classroom and made them do embarrassing dances and sing embarrassing songs so the kids would not go on drugs. I mean, essentially, it is forcing someone to humiliate themselves so that children can laugh at them in the most awful way possible because the Spartans were really disgusting. However, this wasn't the worst thing they did to the Helots. Oh, no. Remember how we told you in the first episode that when boys graduated to the later grades of the Agoge, they could be selected for special missions like joining the Hippias, the elite Spartan fighting force, remember? This wasn't the only mission you could be selected for, though. Another was regular ritualized murder of Helots. Aristotle tells us that once a year, the elected leaders of Sparta, quote, declared war on the Helots, allowing Spartans to slaughter them without penalty. They had their own purge, but only of Helots. Yeah. Young men who graduated into the higher levels of the Agoge at age 20 could be selected to mete out this violence. Plutarch calls it a type of, quote, secret service. According to him, quote, The so-called cryptea, or secret service, of the Spartans, if this be really one of the institutions of Lycurgus, as Aristotle says. So he's quoting Aristotle, and he's even questioning it, but I don't know. Take it as you will. Was of the following nature. 
The magistrates from time to time sent out into the country at large the most discreet of the young warriors, equipped only with daggers and such supplies as were necessary. In the daytime, they scattered into obscure and out-of-the-way places, where they hid themselves and lay quiet. But in the night, they came down into the highways and killed every helot they caught. Oftentimes, too, they actually traversed the fields where helots were working and slew the sturdiest and best of them. So the Spartans made a practice to regularly kill the best, bravest, strongest, or smartest of the helots, just to keep them in line. And this is mentioned in a lot of ancient sources. Yeah, we question, like, you know, what Plutarch was saying, he kind of equivocated, but he's not the only place where this shows up. Like, it does show up in a lot of places, including sources who are contemporary to the Spartans of this time. This kind of massacre of helots could be done either in secret or right out in the open. So according to Thucydides, around 425 BC or so, the Spartans orchestrated a large event where first they hand-selected about 2,000 helots. They judged the bravest, smartest, strongest, and best. They promised them that they would free them. They set wreaths on their heads and led them through the streets to the temples in a procession. After that, they simply disappeared them. And Plutarch tells us, quote, A little afterwards, all disappeared, more than 2,000 of them, in such a way that no man was able to say, either then or afterwards, how they came by their deaths. Helots were sometimes made to serve in Spartan armies, though, like in the army. Sometimes they could even be emancipated for good service, although this varied quite a bit. And if the service was too good, the helots might be killed for getting above themselves. I mean, this is quite iffy here. They were sent into battle more lightly armed than full Spartans, of course. But some did serve as full hoplites or Spartan foot soldiers, and they were needed to bulk up those numbers because the Spartan population was, as we've said, crashing. Lots of historians have pointed out that putting helots in battle alongside Spartiates would introduce a lot of social conflict and contradict the Spartan insistence that all of their armies be made up of battle-hardened Spartiates who'd all gone through a goge training and learned to drill with knife-like precision together. It was also teaching the helots to fight and giving them weapons. It was giving them dignity. It was asking for all kinds of trouble if you happen to be a Spartan. Goodness, giving them dignity. Whew! This was a country full of people who walked around armed to the teeth because they were afraid of the helots. So they're arming the helots here. What does that tell you about how desperate they are to bulk up their numbers? I and many actual historians, I am not an actual historian, but people who are seem to also think this, see the Spartan tendency to put helots in battle alongside the Spartiates as soldiers, not just as servants, as an act of desperation, again, to bulk up their numbers when those numbers were low. So yeah, Epaminondas was not scared. He was betting that when he faced that massive Spartan army in the field, a large percentage of that army would be allies that had been bullied, coerced, and brutalized into being there. And of the actual non-ally Spartans in that army, maybe one in seven, if not more, would really be helots in Spartan cloaks and helmets. In other words, people with a really, really good reason to stab their Spartan overlords in the back the minute they got the chance. So, Epaminondas planned not to go after the allied troops at all. He was going to hit the Spartan corps, the corps that might be mainly, quote-unquote, inferiors and helots hard. And the key to Epaminondas' strategy would be the sacred band of Thebes. The plan, once again, was to meet Sparta on the open field, on the dancing floor of Ares, near the village of Leuctra. It's said that on the eve of battle, Epaminondas held up a snake before the troops and crushed its head in its fist in an egregious, 
Example of totally unnecessary animal cruelty. Showing how the whole body went limp. This was the object lesson. Kill the leader and the followers cease to be a threat. Cut off the snake's head or uh, crush it, I guess. And I guess you defeat the body. Kill the Spartans and the allies would scatter. You just have to kill the Spartans. That's all I'm saying. Look at the snake. The snake is dead. Don't be fooled by the people in the Spartan uniforms who aren't actually Spartans. Just go for the Spartans. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The date was 371 BC. Not long after that peace meeting, quote-unquote, which definitely devolved into war, Epaminondas, Pelopidas, and the Sacred Band arrayed themselves on the battlefield to meet the Spartans in open war on the dancing floor of Ares. The traditional Spartan battle formation involved having its hoplites, heavy infantry, formed into tightly packed phalanxes, 8 to 12 men deep. The Spartan king, Cleombrotus, the younger one, the less experienced one, who felt less personal beef with Thebes, took up a position on the right flank, where Spartan leaders traditionally fought. With him was the Spartate section of his army. He strung out his cavalry in front of the line, a deviation from the standard strategy. Once again, the Thebans were vastly outnumbered, so they had to be smart. Epaminondas knew that the majority of the elite Spartan forces would be concentrated on their right side, or his left, because stage right, stage left here. The rights and the lefts can get confusing, and it does remind me of my time as, like, a theater kid. Like, stage right, stage left. Wait, which right is this? (laughs) Who's left? Who's right? (laughs) And if you screw it up, you die. It's not that you just miss your cue. (laughs) But anyway, so he knew that the really elite forces would be on the side with their king. That's how the Spartans always fought. That's the right flank. The right flank is where you put your stronger side. That would be your left if you're looking at their right. We'd be dead so fast on this battlefield (laughs) just because we'd be struggling with rights and lefts. (laughs) The Spartans, the Spartans now, they were very rigid. They always did things the same way. This is perhaps how they could do everything with such precision because they always did things the exact same way on that battlefield. And I just need to really hammer that in because anyone with a little bit of like lateral, non, non-traditional thinking could just trip these guys up. Yeah, creativity could trip them up. So Epaminondas knew that the Spartiates would be on the right side of the battlefield, which was definitely his left. Let me hold up my hand and figure out which one is the right and the left. It's so confusing. And that the Allied forces, the resentful conscripts from Allied city-states, would be on the left side of the battlefield, which was definitely his right. Epaminondas packed his own men 50 deep on his own left side, facing the Spartiate section of the army, the stronger side. 50 deep was extremely deep. Nobody did that. Creativity. On the other side, the side facing the Allied forces, he made the line very shallow, only four to eight men deep, 
Ideally, he didn't want his army engaging with the Allied forces on that side at all. He had a feeling if he smashed the Spartan elite, the rest would scatter because none of them wanted to be there. Epaminondas also lined up his cavalry in front of his army when he saw that Cleombrotus had done the same. The Spartans did not put a lot of emphasis on cavalry, which is why it's kind of weird that the cavalry was out in front here. They tended to pair man and horse only on the day of battle and choose their worst infantry soldiers as cavalry riders. Whereas the Thebans had a strong tradition of elite cavalry, they paired man and horse together at an earlier point in time so they could form that bond, that bond between man and horse. The Thebans were all about love. The Spartans couldn't love anything. No, they couldn't even love their horse that they go into battle with who carries them in battle. No. Epaminondas predicted that if it came to a head-to-head cavalry clash, his own people would win. All I keep thinking about sometimes when, like, we talked about this battle was, like, the Thebans on one side, like, with their love, with, you know, their way of bonding man and horse and man and man together. Like, they remind me so much of, like, the Care Bearers just, like, staring down the Spartan army and doing their little Care Bearer stare and getting all the Spartans to run. Wow, I don't know what to say to that, but... Care Bearers! would get together and they were fueled by the power of love. I mean, they had rainbows. They lived in a place called Carolot. Was it queer love? I like to think so. I mean, what gender are the Care Bears? I don't know that. I don't remember them having a gender. That's pretty queer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I was very little when I watched them. Anyway, they all like held hands and through the power of the Care Bear stare, they brought like love and rainbows and all the good things in- into the world and made like bad things go away. And slaughtered their enemies on the battlefield. (laughs) So to me, I kind of am like, that's kind of what the Sacred Founded Thieva does. It's more bloody than that, but sure. (laughs) I mean, okay, you've turned the Care Bearers into fighting Ewoks who are really out there stabbing things, but like, what if the Sacred Band of Thebes just had to stand there with their shield flex like they did in the last episode? You know, they did that. <laughs> and they did that shield flex and from their shields radiated love. And instead of like having to fight, the Spartans were just like, you know, your way is better. I think that's exactly what happened in the first battle we talked about. That is the actual sexiest battle. That's why I'm referring to it again here. And like, Honestly, did you ever think that you were going to equate the Sacred Band of Thieves with the Care Bears? No, but now it will never leave your mind. So, on the day of the battle, the two armies clashed. The Theban cavalry easily beat back the Spartan cavalry, causing a chaotic rout. Men and horses crashing through the Spartan lines. Meanwhile, the 50-man deep force on the left headed toward the right Spartan side. There was a lot of complicated maneuverings as the Spartans tried to flank and the Thebans outpaced them resulting in even more chaos. In the midst of this, Pelopidas led the sacred band out in front, detaching from the main group and hurtling straight toward the right Spartiate flank, crashing into it before it could encircle the Theban army. The sheer ferocity of the attack overwhelmed the Spartiate forces. Over 400 Spartans were left dead on the field that day, including Cleombrotus, the king. The other king. There were two kings. The rest of the Spartans fled in disgrace, their reputation for invincibility irreparably shattered as it had been so many times before by the sacred band. It's quite likely a large percentage of those Spartans were in fact not Spartiates at all, but Helots, Hypomionions, um, Inferiors, and others who had no reason to risk their lives on the battlefield for the Spartan upper class, so they were easier to disperse. But the fact that the world thought these were full-on Spartiates meant that the mass retreat still reflected very, very badly on Sparta. The Thebans erected a trophaeon at the place where the battle turned. 
a monument piled high with the armor, weapons, and gear of the defeated foe. Later, it was replaced with a simple stone cylindrical monument that can still be seen today. So Pausanias tells us that this battle, the Battle of Glutra, was the key deciding conflict that would establish the Theban freedom from Spartan rule forever, even as it laid out the foundation for their downfall. So after this battle, Sparta's iron grip on the Peloponnese started to break. Everyone saw that the Spartans weren't invincible. In fact, they were vulnerable. Suddenly, the Spartans weren't just fighting to keep their dominance throughout Greece. They were fighting to maintain control over their own region. Their shame was very visible. Rom tells us that about a third of the Spartan elite fighting force, the Spartiates, had died at the Battle of Leuctra. The rest had fled the field. This was devastating, not only because so many Spartiates had died, and Sparta really couldn't afford to lose any right now, but also because those who had fled were now out of that category too. Because if you flee, if you flee the battlefield, you can no longer be a Spartan, and certainly not a Spartiate. This means there were effectively, for all intents and purposes, no Spartiates at all. So Sparta had extremely harsh penalties for people who fled the field of battle. The word for them was trizantes. It meant tremblers. Spartans had codified into law various punishments that ensured the tremblers were both excluded from society and remained very visible so as to continually be shamed and abused. Shame! 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 Like that. The punishments included... They had to wear a ragged, falling-apart cloak. Kind of like what happened in the Agoge, I guess. It's like unmanning them and taking them back to being a boy, essentially. It's a little bit throwback Thursday, you know. (laughs) (laughs) They had to shave off half their beards and only half their beards. They were not allowed to marry. They couldn't borrow hot coals or a branch on fire from their neighbors to start a fire in their own hearth, which was quite inconvenient because starting a fire from scratch is hard. And anyone who encountered a trembler in the street were allowed to kick them or punch them. So tremblers had to stay visible when outside. When inside, they weren't allowed the comfort of a fire unless they could start one themselves, which is an onerous process for those without matches and lighters. So if you think about it, like, in the ancient world, people were dependent on fire for cooking and warmth, and they had to, like, start the fire themselves, and there were not easy ways to do that. Unless, like, borrowing coals from your neighbor or from a communal fire was an easy way to do that, and it also fostered community, but they were now cut off from that. Yeah, and remember, they, they're not allowed to have a wife, so presumably they're not allowed to have a family, so they have to do everything for themselves. Yeah, and when outside, they were subject to assault. It was a miserable life. This is why there's that phrase, right? Come back with your shield or on it. So usually, there wouldn't be many of these guys. But James Rom points out that after the Battle of Leuctra, hundreds of men now categorized as tremblers was enough to make a rebel army. There was strength in numbers here. These were hundreds of battle-trained men kicked out of the Spartan state and with no reason to be invested in it anymore. In fact, they had an incentive to overthrow it. This was also very, very bad for Sparta. The Battle of Leuctra took place in 371 BC. It exposed once and for all that the Spartans were vulnerable and defeatable, even as it hollowed out the remaining Spartan fighting force. Any Spartiates left over were tremblers, shamed and disgraced and ejected by the war machine. Sparta was no longer in any fit state to dominate Greece. It couldn't even dominate its own helots. That left a power vacuum in Greece, and everyone knows that chaos loves a vacuum. 
33 years passed before the next battle we're going to talk about in detail. And those 33 years were very eventful, as the remaining city-states warred for power and territorial control with upstart warlords who had accumulated large followings. Those wars were full of battle, intrigue, political maneuverings, hostage-takings, backroom dealings, egregious bribery, and betrayals. I mean, all the things we live for here on Ancient History Fangirl. City walls were torn down, treaties were shattered as soon as they were signed, and at least one battle broke out during an Olympic Games. The sacred band was at the forefront and counted many wins as well as some losses. Athens abandoned Thebes as soon as it was politically convenient and joined Sparta to fight against the Thebans, but Sparta was barely holding it together at this point. As the Spartans struggled to control their own homeland, their own helots, all the people they were supposed to be subjugating in their own territory, new players, as we've said, emerged in the power vacuum throughout Greece, including a few upstart new leagues and some very colorful independent warlords who I'm not going to go into detail on, but if I did, it would make a 13-episode arc. One of them was named Dionysus, Jen. It all goes back to Dionysus, the disruptor. I can't guarantee that he's the fun, drunk, queer warlord, but maybe he was. I'm sure he's not. He was probably just an asshole like the other ones. (laughs) Probably. I mean, Dionysus is, is a common name or was a common name, but it just reminds me of, like, Mithridates, who took Dionysus as his patron, and Spartacus, and, like, just love the idea that, like, upstarts and revolutionaries. I mean, he saw himself that way, but I don't know that he necessarily was a revolutionary so much as, like, just an asshole. Yeah, probably just was an asshole. You know, it's the ancient world. Everyone was an asshole. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, a lot happened in these few decades of ancient Greek history. In 338 BC, 33 years after the Battle of Leuctra, the playing field had changed. Pelopidas, the epic commander of the Sacred Band, was dead. He died in 364 BC, about 26 years prior, in a suitably epic fashion on the battlefield. Epaminondas, commander of the Theban forces as a whole, was also dead, just two years later, also on the battlefield. So this is where Philip of Macedon comes into the story. Yes, we're talking about Alexander the Great's dad. So about 30 years ago, starting at the age of 14, Philip had been held hostage in Thebes due to various political maneuverings. While there, he became a lover of Pelopidas himself, the famed leader of the sacred band, and learned a lot about how the Greeks made war. So later, as king of Macedon, a kingdom in northern Greece between Thessaly to the south and Thrace to the north, Philip began to involve himself in the upheaval further south. He was one of those new players who found the power vacuum the Spartans left behind just a little too tempting to resist. Originally, he was coaxed into the conflict by the Thebans to help them fight their enemies, but he quickly turned this into a pretext for conquering all of Greece, which he more or less did by 346 BC, although the furiously independent city-states were not willingly on board. Ultimately, it was opposition to Philip's dominance that forced all the other city-states, Boeotia, Athens, the tattered remains of Sparta, such as it was, to put aside their vast mutual resentments and unite against him. It was the Athenians, according to some ancient sources, who deliberately provoked open war with Philip of Macedon, going against a treaty they held with Philip by attacking allied regions. Philip marched south to tame the fractious city-state. He took his 18-year-old son with him as kind of a father-son activity, you know, take your kid to work day. Yeah, it was all about that bonding. Yeah, his son's name was Alexander. That Alexander. Yes. 
Philip marched south with approximately 30,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, an intimidating force, but the Athenians were not alone. After decades of war and rivalry, the Thebans and Spartans stood with them, and forces from other city-states as well, bringing their number to roughly the same as the Macedonians. Among them was the Sacred Band. The United Forces of Greece met Philip and his Macedonians at Chaeronea, a city in Thebes, and like the Battle of Leuctra, the way the battle lines were arrayed was significant here. They did have an, a city name that is close to Carolot. It is! It is close to Carolot. Oh, but it, this is, yeah. Coincidence? I think not. You see, I've proved my thesis now. They really were Care Bearers. Or proto-care bears. <laughs> proto-care bears. <laughs> if any of our fans out there would like to draw the sacred band of thieves as care bears, I would personally be so happy. That would be lovely. Please do it. <laughs> so, okay. Conventions of the time said that you should put your strongest forces on your right side, facing a weaker force on your opponent's left. In previous battles with the sacred band, Epaminondas had put them on his left instead, meeting strength with strength hurling the sacred band in a densely packed projectile, like a spear, straight at the opposing army's strongest side. That's what he'd done at the Battle of Leuctra, and it had worked. But by now, Epaminondas was long dead, and the new leaders weren't that creative. The sacred band was placed on the right side, facing what the Thebans thought was the Macedonians' weak side. See, in this battle array, King Philip was on the right side of his own battle line, so not facing the sacred band. He was facing the Athenians on the other side of the army. This is about where you'd expect a king in the ancient world to be with his army. If you happen to be in a time machine and you go back to the ancient world and you're on a battlefield and you want to know who's got the strongest line, it's, it's, wait, right, left, oh my god, I'm dead. You're dead. I'm so dead. So anyway... This is about where you'd expect a king in the ancient world to be with his army in the strongest position with the strongest forces on the right-hand side of his own forces stage right. On the left side, facing the sacred band, Philip had placed his son, the 18-year-old Alexander. This was his first real battle. So he's got a real desire to prove himself. And he's just 18. He wouldn't have even graduated the Agoge yet. Or he would be too young to even join the Sacred Band of Thebes because they started him at 20. Yeah, but here's the thing, Jenny. He's not Spartan and he's not Theban. He's Macedonian. This is new. You know, this is something new that Greece hasn't faced in this way. Yeah. So in past battles, the Sacred Band had hurled themselves at the enemy, getting right out in front, at the front of the front lines, striking an aggressive blow that left the opposing forces' strongest side in tatters. That's how they won their battles. But this time, it was Alexander leading that aggressive charge. He got right out in front with his own elite fighting force, hitting the Theban line like a wrecking ball. Alexander was gunning for the sacred band. According to John Rom, quote, To him, they were the head of the snake, the emblem of Greek defiance. Lopping off this head might paralyze the rest of free Greece. Sounds a bit familiar to what happened to the Spartans by the sacred band. No snakes have been harmed in the recording of this episode. <laughs> Ancient sources tell us of how Alexander's forces stripped away the layers of men between the sacred band and his spears. Finally, when all the others had died or fled the field who could, the sacred band fought on, surrounded on all sides by Alexander's army, steadily hacking them to pieces. Alexander's infantry carried long, heavy spears. The Sarissa, a new innovation in the Greek world, 
much longer and heavier than the infantry spears that came before. The sarissa was about 13 to 20 feet long and made of cornel wood or cornelian cherry. This wood is so heavy and dense that it sinks in water. The sarissa had leaf-shaped spears, sharp enough to pierce straight through an enemy shield and a heavy bronze butt that could be used to anchor the spear to the ground in the face of a charge. James Rom, in his book, The Theban Sacred Band, which is excellent, which I will absolutely link to in the show notes, James Rom paints a picture for us of how this day went down for the sacred band. I included this entire quote, which has to do with the archaeology of the skeletons that were uncovered in the massive grave of the sacred band, because I just think it's so vivid. And I wanted to share it with you. This book is really, really good. It's called The Sacred Band, 300 Theban Lovers Fighting to Save Greek Freedom. It's one of my major sources for this episode. You should definitely read it. Anyway, so I'm going to give you this amazing quote from that book. Quote, The skeletons in the mass grave at Chaeronea show what the band went through on that morning. The Macedonians dug in with their sarissas, long pikes of cornel wood with fearsome flanged blades and heavy spike-tipped butts. Spears penetrated so deep as to be hard to pull out. Some victims were found with blades still lodged in pelvises and rib cages. If a sarissa could not be recovered, Alexander's men could draw a machaira or copus, the swords they wore at their sides. The sacred band was assailed with these blades, which could cut right to the bone or, if swung down overhand, slice through helmets and split heads. The multiple blunt force traumas seen on recovered skulls tell the tale of the day's struggle. Some band members clearly fought on with broken jaws or faces or even with fractured crania until another blow finished them off. One man's facial fractures indicate he'd been hit by a heavy object swung up from below, presumably the rim of his opponent's shield. That must have killed him, but only after his skull had been bashed in from above and partly sliced off by a blade at the back of his head. This man, though battered from all sides, had been unwilling to die. The quote goes on to say, quote, Another grim sign of the band's travails is a skull with a quarter-inch hole evidently made by the butt spike of a sarissa. The victim must have been kneeling or prone when the fearsome metal prong was thrust into his brain. The blow was so sharp that experts can detect a circular depression around the hole's rim, where the round flange at the base of the spike compressed the bone. This coup de grace, as one expert, John Ma, has termed it, attests to Alexander's zeal to annihilate the band. To him, they were the head of the snake, the emblem of Greek defiance. Lopping off this head might paralyze the rest of free Greece. So, shit got bad. It got bad all up and down the line. Half a mile away, where Philip of Macedon fought the less experienced Athenians, the bodies were piling up into a wall. The later orator and statesman Demosthenes, now just a young man, was in the thick of it. Like Alexander, this was his first ever battle. He fled the field like a trembler. When his cloak caught in a bush, he thought it was one of Philip's Macedonians. Blind with terror, he begged the bush for mercy. Meanwhile, the sacred band fought on, refusing to be shamed in front of their lovers, refusing to give ground, refusing to stand down and let the men they loved fall unprotected to the enemy until the last of them was slain. It's said that after wreaking similar destruction on the Athenian side, Philip rode over to Alexander's end to see how his son had done. Philip had been very sacred band adjacent in his youth. As a hostage in Thebes, he had been the lover of Pelopitis, the student of Epaminondas, and also lived in the home of Pamenes, another general and leader of the sacred band. Some accounts say they were Erastes Aramino's lovers, too. It's said 
that he saw the piles of dead, all three hundred of the sacred band, their bodies piled in a heap, all of them slain in battle. No mercy had been shown, no quarter given. Alexander's goal had been their absolute annihilation. Plutarch says, of the moment Philip laid eyes on them, quote, Philip was surveying the dead and stopped at the place where the three hundred were lying, all where they had faced the long spheres of his phalanx, with their armor and mingled one with another. He was amazed, and on learning that this was the band of lovers and beloved, burst into tears and said, Perish miserably, they who think that these men did or suffered aught disgraceful. The ancient Greeks saw this war as a fight for freedom from the Macedonians, and so it was. The sacred band had held out against the Macedonians for many years before this, always at the forefront of battle. And when they fell, free Greece fell with them. Thebes, leader of the resistance against the Macedonians, was gutted. Its political leaders were driven out or executed, and pro-Macedonian leaders installed in their place. Rom says, quote, As before, in the days of the Spartan occupation, the Thebans lived under rightist oppressors backed by an outside army. The sacred band was created to defend against just such a situation. When they fell, the Thebans were right back where they began. The Boeotian League was dismantled. Just two years after that, Philip of Macedon was assassinated at his daughter's wedding by one of his own bodyguards, possibly at the behest of his wife Olympus, or maybe even his own son, Alexander the Great. The sources conflict. Meanwhile, the sacred band stayed buried under the earth. The world moved on. Their exploits were forgotten. And it's here, amidst the smoking ruins of a battlefield soaked with blood, the sacred band dead and gone, the world moving on without them, that we return to the story of Iphis and Ianthe. In our first episode on gender rebels in the ancient world, we talked about how the ancient Greeks erased queer women. By denying them a place in story, in mythology, in the cultural lexicon, there wasn't a name for women who loved women. There weren't myths or heroines or poems or images, with the exception of Sappho. In the story of Iphis and Ianthe, Iphis, in Ovid's telling, a girl who had been raised as a boy, was in love with another girl, and believed that in all the history of the world, no woman had ever loved another woman. She saw herself as a monstrosity of nature, an exception to the natural order. While you can also interpret Iphis as a transgender man or a non-binary person, the fact remains that women who loved women were erased in the service of redirecting women's sexuality exclusively toward husband, family, and state. Then came Jesus and his woke for the time, exhortation that men be celibate except in marriage too. Christianity sought to redirect men's sexuality in the same way women's was redirected, toward the family alone. Of course, there were competing societal norms and values, and this has never been perfectly followed. But it was what they were trying out. But in the centuries and millennia after the fall of the sacred band, long after ancient Greece and everyone in it was dead and buried, Christianity embarked on a similar mission, to erase the stories and existence of queer men. After centuries of Christian homogeny and relentless straightwashing, later historians and translators tried to strip all trace of homoerotic passion from the classical stories and writings they admired so much. By the 1800s, depending on where you were in Europe in the time period, this is mainly about Western history, homoerotic love was widely criminalized, and many male writers and thinkers we know today to have been attracted to other men were in deep cover, hiding their passions and feelings. There was no name by now for homoerotic passion. 
Just as the Greeks had once done to queer women centuries ago, so Christian sensibilities did to gay men in later times, stripping them of their heroes, their mythology, their stories, and leaving them alone in the dark, with themselves, with their nameless love, with Iphis. But in 1818, a gentleman scholar, George Ledwell Taylor, an architect, happened to stumble, literally, or actually his horse was the one that stumbled, on an amazing discovery, the remains of a giant statue of a lion near the town of Carinia, Carolot, Carinia. When fully excavated, the lion was found to be about 20 feet tall, sitting on its hind legs. Beneath it was a mass grave containing 254 male skeletons laid neatly in seven rows. These skeletons had clearly suffered violent deaths. Archaeologists studying them in the years afterward have found evidence of intense battle, faces sheared off by sharp blades, large heavy spear points lodged in rib cages and pelvises, skulls fractured and cut clean off, bodies battered and bludgeoned from multiple sides. Some of their feet have been cut off, probably after death, in a weird mutilation ritual, the significance of which has been lost. But perhaps most tellingly, the men were buried in pairs, some of them with their arms linked to another, others holding hands. In death, as in life, they were laid to rest side by side. It was after the discovery of the sacred band that European scholars began to really contend with the idea that all those stories of male love in the ancient classical sources were not intended to be platonic or spiritual love. Novelists began to contend with these feelings too, threading themes of homosexual passion into works like Dracula and Leaves of Grass and The Picture of Dorian Gray. In 1862, Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, a German writer and attorney, came out as gay, although they didn't have that name for it then. He called himself an earning, a word derived from something in Plato's Symposium. Thousands of years after their death, the sacred band emerged from their graves again, fierce and dauntless, proudly holding hands, to show people a heroic picture of homoerotic love that was undeniable, that would not be straight-washed, that was strong enough to overcome centuries of Christian erasure and criminalization and shame. Reaching out more than 2,000 years after their deaths, the heroes of Thebes rose up to fight a different battle on a different battlefield for love once again. And this time, perhaps we could say they won. <sighs> so that's it for this week. That's it for this week. Jenny is a little overcome with emotion. You can join us next week for whatever we're doing next. In the meantime, catch up with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan, on Twitter at Ancient History Fangirl, on Facebook and Instagram. If you're also feeling quite emotional, please go check out the James Rom book. Sacred Band of Thebes, 300 Gay Lovers Fighting for Greek Freedom. It's amazing. It's a really good book. And speaking of books, we, we also wrote a book, Women of Myth, about women in world mythology. And you can find out more about it at ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And check out our Patreon. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl, where you can chat with us and get extra episodes and other content. It's pretty great. And we have a new patron to thank this week, Molly Maloney. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.